Well, good morning. My name is Josh Staten. I'm one of the pastors here. And now I'm going to read our scripture text for this morning. It comes from John's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth, which had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I got in an Uber recently, and my driver was listening to a show on the healing properties of uh, certain gemstones. So shine a light through a diamond or a ruby or an emerald, and it will produce energy or peace or sex drive, depending on the stone. And I was listening, I was like, sure, sure. Uh, Eventually, there was this intelligent-sounding, normal-seeming British guy talking with enthusiasm um, about someone being healed of a long-standing medical condition by shining a light through some crystals And he was baffled as to why there weren't more people that were enthusiastic about this. And I got out of the car thinking, that's what people feel like when they come to church. 
That's what it feels like to hear something like that read and be like, I just don't know, man. I just don't know. Like, thanks for everything. Uh, I honestly, you seem nice, and I'm grateful that you offered me like a single origin locally roasted coffee earlier, and you don't seem that crazy on the surface, but when it comes down to it really, like how it presses on my real life, you might as well be talking about healing crystals, pal. Uh, no, no offense to the healing crystal people, because they're there. They're out there, obviously, right? And we love you, and you're so welcome here. Maybe it worked for somewhere, you know, for someone somewhere out there. But come on, we're, what we're talking about here? Let's just let's put the cards on the table and be honest. What we're talking about is the life and death of a first-century Near Eastern peasant man who didn't live in a prominent area, he lived on the outskirts of the empire. And even if he had some good things to say, he was one of many, many, many voices in the religious pantheon. A lot of what he says actually seems to ring similar to what other teachers have said. And at the risk of being a little too honest, some of those other religions seem way more chill or way more woke in yoga pants. You know, they're great, so comfortable, flexible. So honestly, it doesn't really, if, if that's your starting place, right, it doesn't really matter if, you, if I come up here and I dress this, this up with some intelligent sounding quotes from philosophers or throw in some sociological tidbits, whatever. I'm expecting you to believe this guy wasn't just a good teacher, but he was God in human form. That he demonstrated in some authoritative sense the way life was truly meant to be lived, <laughs> That he died in a particularly gruesome way and that that death 2,000 years ago can somehow have a profound bearing on your life today in Brooklyn in 2019. That he didn't just die, but he came back to life and that changed everything for his followers. It birthed a worldwide movement and those who trust in him even today are filled with his ghost. crystals, man. They're united with him. They're filled up with his very love and spirit, so profoundly reformed from within that they somehow get merged in and join in this project of redemption that he is working in the world. I mean, that sounds like the crystals. It sounds like magical thinking or or whatever. If you're like, if that's you, if you're like, that's the gist of it, I've heard this before. I hope this doesn't take very long because I've got brunch later. I'll be paying $17 for eggs and I'm excited about it. If that is how you feel, I have been there. I can totally, totally understand that. And I want to say to you truly, thank you for being here anyway. Uh, You are so welcome here today and and every Sunday after and anything that we do. Others of you, you're like, yeah, crystals. (laughs) You're on board. There's some point in your story where the impossible things that, that we just read or the impossible things that I just mentioned... They merged into your story in a profound way, and they weren't just a set of ideas, but it felt like you were actually meeting a person and be, being filled up with this incredible sense of love and peace and forgiveness and mercy. And you're here to celebrate, and you're excited, and you're still going to brunch afterward. And right, this is Easter. This is Christian Super Bowl. And, and, and if you're here, and that's you, you are so welcome. And wh- what do we say? He is risen. He risen Amen. I want to tell you about one other Uber driver that I had. This week, 
I think God is sending me these people because he knows I'm out of stories after 20 years of teaching. He's like, let me send this guy some new material. So this man, uh, I got in his car. He was incredibly friendly. Like, I mean, like there's obnoxious, chatty Uber driver, but then there's like incredibly friendly, slightly refreshing. That's, this guy was that category. Obviously kind, talkative, but not overbearing. And, and quite frankly, he looked like a modern guru to me. I mean, his car was really nice. It smelled amazing. He just like exuded this sort of like quiet confidence when I got into his car. It was evening. I was on my way home. His shift was just starting and he seemed to be pumped about it. He was like, yeah, man, I can't wait to hear the things I'm going to hear tonight. I was like, oh, really? Like, I sort of like, I'm going to look at my phone now. Um, and he was like, if people have a few drinks, they will tell you everything in their life. And I sort of perk up and I'm like, oh, yeah, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? It's my, my go-to cab driver question. Like, tell me the craziest thing that's ever happened where I'm sitting. Um, and, and he said, uh, he, he told me about a couple who broke off their engagement in the car. He said the fight was building for blocks. Finally, she rolls down the window and says, oh, yeah, this takes the diamond and throws it out the window. <laughs> so the guy freaks out, obviously screams, stop, stop, gets out of the car, goes to search for it. The woman cold, she's like, drive on. <laughs> I called this Uber, take me home. He told me about another guy, super, super wealthy guy uh, who has a private jet. He said he had driven this, this guy, given his card at some point. And the guy would call him when he needed to go out to Teterboro Airport to get on his private jet. And he, he you know, knew this guy. He was somewhat familiar with him. He said he got in the car one time and he, he asked like he always does, how's your life going, sir? The guy says, you don't want to hear about my life. He says, yes, I do. I ask. I, I want to hear, sir. He said, all right, fine. Take me someplace quiet. He's like, okay. The driver starts driving. He's like, no, somewhere out of the way. So you want to go to the beach? So they drove down to the, to the shore. He said on the way, the man stopped and got a 12-pack got a of beer and a cigar. And he says they pull up in front of the beach. They get out. They sit down looking at the ocean. He said for the next, like, hour upon hour, this man poured out his heart, smoked, smoked his cigar, drank his beer, and just told this man all of his problems, everything that was going on in his life, his trouble with his kids, his trouble with his wife, how though he was wildly successful, he struggled with his job and his identity and a sense of purpose and on and on. Finally, after hours had passed, he drove the man back to his building on the Upper East Side. They're sitting outside, and the man writes him a check for $4,000 and says, thanks for listening. The Uber driver said, thank you, sir. It was a pleasure to be with you, to hear what you shared with me. He held the check up in front of him and he tore it up. He looked at him and he said, not everyone is in this world for money, sir. He said, you should have seen the look on the doorman's face. (laughs) I said, you've been listening to people for years. He said, he drove a yellow cab before Uber. I said, what have you learned in all of your years of listening to me? Well, you seem so attentive and so intuitive. He said, in my study of New York City, the biggest thing that comes up the most is loneliness. I got out of the car thinking, that is worth five stars. (laughs) This guy is incredible. And I just want to share with you a few questions that in my heart are connected with what that cab driver shared with me. And these are questions that I, I must admit, they, they sort of haunt me. I ask these questions of myself. I'm not just putting them to you. I ask these questions for the people that I love. I, I'm guessing that you think about them in some way in, in, the, in the language they appear in your own mind. 
Uh, and if you don't, I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to. We don't get through life without being confronted at some point with these types of questions. But the first one is, is, is this. Is what you are listening to true enough to take you where you want to go? Is what you're listening to wise enough, able enough, true enough to take you where you really want to go? Now, when I say the word true in that question, I don't mean like an exclusive claim or I don't even mean really is it real, even though that's often the way we use the word true. I I mean it like a more ancient definition um, that has to do with direction. Like you shoot an arrow and it flies straight. It would be called a true shot meaning the arrow has been crafted exactly to go where it is aimed. The arrow is telling the truth, and the truth is being proved by its use. That's, that's what I'm talking about. That's what this question is about. Is, is what you are allowing to shape your life proving true as you go? Is it taking you where you are aiming? Another, another way I put it to myself is, are the influences that I have intentionally or unintentionally given formative power in my life able to help me along to a full, creative, original, meaningful life? Do the influences that I have chosen or allowed know enough Do they know enough about general human life? And do they know in particular enough about me and how those two things merge in order to take me to a place that is good and true and full? Do they love me or do they want to control me in some way? Are they concerned for my deepest well-being or are they trying to make a profit off of me by selling me something? Are, Are Are they shaping me, the things I'm listening to and allowing to form me? Are they shaping me into the best version of myself or are they playing at my selfishness? Sort of frothing up my my selfishness or self-pity or longing for something that I really don't need. Are they taking the full scope of reality in or are they sort of wistfully ignorant of certain aspects of the world? Is what you're listening to true enough to take you where you really want to go. And the second question is, what do you do if you get a negative answer to that? And it's basically, how does a person really change? How how do you really change? If you come up with an answer that's like, what I'm living for isn't really sufficient, then what do you do about it? How on earth can you change? And I'm guessing if you ask that man on the beach with his Uber driver sitting next to him, drinking the beer, smoking the cigar, you ask him, do you want to change? Surely he would say yes, he's pouring out his sorrow. But how? How do I change? How do you change? I'm guessing most of you have come up against some point in your life where you said, I want to change. I need to grow. I'm not satisfied. I want to become something more. One of my favorite things about Jesus, whatever else you think of him, right? And you don't have to be on the belief spectrum at all. You're so welcome here, as I said. But whatever else you think about Jesus, one of the things I like about him, one of the reasons it's kept me coming back for 25 years or so now as a follower is he spends some quality time on those two questions. What is shaping and forming my life? Where is it leading and how does a person change? So I I want us to think about those two questions, and I'm going to take us on a quick journey through Jesus' life and death and life again, and then we're going to come back to those two questions at the end. So we're going to move quickly, Uh, but first, his life. The, the, The 
gospel according to John, right? They're all Jesus' gospel, but we read the gospels, the gospel according to John. We just read the end of it, the last chapter, John 21. But as you move along the way, you see some really crucial and important things about the life of Jesus. And, and I want to say, if you survey all four gospels, you might sort of categorize what Jesus is up to like this. He comes on the scene and he announces the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what on earth is that? The kingdom of God is the place where life is happening according to God's desires. It, it, the, the theologian Dallas Willard said, the, the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. Do you want to live in the place where, where God is in charge, where, God is, where God's peace and presence and mercy and justice is, is true and reigning? Here, here, here it is. And Jesus announces the kingdom of God. He's like, the kingdom of God is like this. And he teaches a, a parable. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. He's always saying, this is the kingdom of God. He announces it. Then the second thing he does, it's not just disembodied ideas. He demonstrates it. He says, the kingdom of God looks like mercy and forgiveness. The kingdom of God looks like this person who can't see, seeing. The kingdom of God looks like this person who can't walk, walking. The kingdom of God looks like these people who have been excluded, being brought in. These people who didn't have enough to eat, getting it. So he announces, he demonstrates, and then he invites. He says, come and see. Come and follow me. Go where I'm going. Walk alongside me. I'm going to show you the kingdom of God. So he announces, he demonstrates, and he invites. And still, his closest friends (laughs) struggle with it. Philip, in John 14, a disciple of Jesus, he, he It's about to be the end of Jesus' ministry, and and Philip comes to him with this question. Show us the way. After everything he'd been doing, show us the way. Show us something that gives coherence and purpose and meaning to our life. Basically, like, show us how to fly true. Show us how to live in this kingdom that you've been talking about. Show us what, what makes life really life. Show us the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. For this reason, I think, if you're just a student of of life and humanity, no matter what you believe about Jesus, if you want to have a deep search for the meaning of life, you really should consider Jesus on some level because no other rabbi, no other shaman, no other mystic or teacher or philosopher quite makes the claim that Jesus is making. Basically, like, show us the, the way of life. And he's like, I am the way. He locates meaning and coherence and purpose and contentment and joy in himself And that means something really, really, really important. It means that we have to have relationship in order to get at the meaning of life, that somehow you were made for love. Because if if Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then it's not a set of disembodied principles that you need to follow or moral guidelines. It's a person that you need to look into their eyes and be embraced by. That puts a really important emphasis on relationship. I think that's one of the central ways you can identify the the life of Jesus is that he insists on putting love at the center. He's insistent on it. For for Jesus, love wasn't just an an enlightened teaching. It was his tangible life. Just look at the company he chooses. He's constantly shocking people with the people he chooses to be around. If you encountered a person with, with, with leprosy, you literally couldn't touch them or there was a vast array of ceremonies and cleansings you would have to go just to go back into community. Jesus walks up and touches the lepers. Jesus welcomes the prostitutes in and says, sit down for a meal. He constantly is giving himself to the weak. He opens up his, his resources to anyone who had need. He shares his food and, and, and resources until he has to become dependent on others to carry his ministry forward. He had the audacity to live like 
really live like love was at the center. But he didn't just do that for the oppressed, right? That would sort of make him like endearing and easy to be around. He wasn't killed because he was nice to people and carried around lambs and wore Birkenstocks. He was welcoming the the oppressor as well. He chose for his 12 closest followers a tax collector that had sold out all of his neighbors and was like coming with the Romans and knocking on their door and we're like, we know what you made last year. Make sure you pay up. Totally betrayed them. Jesus chooses him for for his team. He took a private meeting with one of the priests that would collude in his execution. He shares a meal, his final night, right, with the one who's going to betray him and breaks bread. As the soldiers are whipping his back and legs until he's unrecognizable and finally literally nailing him to a cross, he prayed that they would know forgiveness and love. The biblical writer says it this way, God is love. Somehow in the very character of God is not just static power, not just a booming Morgan Freeman voice. Love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the nature of Yahweh is community, is love. So the expression of the truth, the way, is a person. I am. If you put something else at the center of your life other than love, you will metaphorically get a crisis and end up on a beach with your Uber driver. But here's an interesting combination. We all, like you knew, right? I got a Britney Spears microphone on. You knew I was gonna talk about Jesus' love. But here's the combination that's, that's interesting. Is that the, th- the other thing people are always noting about Jesus is his authority. His authority, like, and we love the love part, but the authority part's like, ha, ah, not as much. But, but his love wasn't weak or flimsy. It was authoritative. Uh, it was like he was living and acting like someone who had authority that doesn't have to be given. Like he, he, he truly knew who he was. And this is how it plays out. He speaks forgiveness over people and they receive it. He talks to diseases and they are cured. He speaks to blindness and it becomes sight. He speaks to birth defects and injuries and they are, are healed. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And people's ears burn and their hearts burn. And like, we've never heard anyone talk like this. Tell us more. That's a really important thing. Someone can say, I love you, and that's one thing. But if someone says, I love you, and they have the authority of the universe, then pretty much nothing else can stick to you anymore because you are loved by the one who can really say you are loved. No one ever spoke like this man. That's what they say. He spoke as if the sins people committed against God, he could let them off the hook for. Finally, in his last prayer in John 17, before we get to this this scene, he says this. He's praying, the son praying to the father, I've given them everything you gave me. I've held nothing back. I kept nothing for myself. They can be with us now. Completely, unrestrictedly with us now. Home. What a life. What a thing to pray as a summary of that life. So we also have to see the life of Jesus, but also the, 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 de- the death of Jesus, of course, right? Let's be honest. He wasn't the first person or the last to die by crucifixion. As horrible as it was, there have been other people in the world who've died in more torturous, torturous ways, at least physically, than Jesus did. There's also been way more famous deaths you know, a- a- along the way, certainly before, before Jesus, that, that, that we could see. But the first thing to notice about Jesus' death that's really important is that it was promised. 
this might not initially register with you as, as seeming important, but it wasn't just a, a, an accidental turn of fortune that led Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders or the Romans or to the cross. He was on his way there his entire life. And he keeps trying to tell people that he's on his way there his entire life, and they just refuse to hear it. In Luke 9, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus, just in the first three Gospels, predicts his own death nine times. Jesus says a lot of things over and over, like, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. My life is given as a ransom for many. So according to Jesus, what happens on the cross is not the heinous act of a barbaric God who's exacting punishment on someone because he just got to get his anger out somewhere. It was, the, it was the fullest expression of the love of God who was relentlessly stubborn about saying, come on, let's be family. Come on, let's be family. I want to remove every barrier. Jesus kept telling his friends that this is what the Hebrew scriptures has been talking about and pointing to if, if you were paying attention. Then, so it was promised, his death was promised. And the next thing is it was accomplished. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And what he meant was this sort of like, you can approach it from this cross from so many different angles. And one of them is he's saying, I am Israel's Messiah. I am coming as Passover lamb, right? So Israel had this story of being enslaved by the most powerful empire in the world. And Yahweh comes and rescues them and carries them out. And the final act of, of that rescue is the shedding of blood of this lamb so that they, and, and my kids are always like, why does someone have to die for you to be forgiven? Can't you just forgive? What's up with that? Good question. He's, God's working with Israel to make this reality known, that if God is the source of life, right? And, and if you're like, I believe like evolutionary processes, yeah, of course, we do too. Okay, relax. But if God is the source of life and, and out of him emerges this, this world that we're in and, and, and sin, whatever it is, if it's an outdated word for you, never mind. But it, whatever it is, it's trying to meet the deepest needs of your life on just human resources, it's, it's going against God in some way, against his word, against his character. So to sin is to separate yourself from the source of life. Now, if you separate yourself from the source of life, what happens? And this is where my kids even get it. They're like, death. Yes. So God's working with Israel and he's saying, listen, the consequences of your sin are profound. So an animal is dying and the blood is being shed to say, listen, this is what happens. This is the result. But Jesus comes as the final Passover lamb. That his blood is shed so that anyone who clings to him, who believes in him, who hides their life in his, is utterly out of the final grip of death. Passover lamb. The second thing is he's the scapegoat. On the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, there's the Passover lamb that was slaughtered. And then the scapegoat, the priest would pray all the people's sins onto the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would walk outside the city carrying all the shame away. Not just the penalty and power on the cross, but the scapegoat carrying everything you've done wrong away. Jesus is a substitute. One of my favorite theologians, John Sott, says the essence of sin is human beings putting themselves in the place of God. The essence of the gospel is God putting himself in the place of human beings as a substitute. The last thing is he's a victor. He's winning a victory. Like, remember when David went out to fight Goliath, the tall guy, and it's like everyone thought that was a story about, if you're short, it's okay, get a slingshot. But it's really, it's really a story about one man who wins a victory against the enemy of the people of God, and then everybody shares in it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is winning a victory for the people of God over our primary enemy, and everybody shares in it. 
So on the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. And then one minute later, he was dead. One minute later, he was dead. Whatever that might have been about, it is over now. I think it's easy for us to sit, and don't be insulted, but with a little bit of chronological snobbery sometimes, we're like, look how far the world has come. I got a computer in my pocket. I know stuff. And we're like, these are pre-modern, pre-enlightened, gullible religious people who were just looking for something to believe. Of course, they got swept up in the phenomenon. They did not expect this at all. Some of them, he shows up multiple times and they're like, I, don't, I still don't believe it. I'm not in. They are as skeptical as you or I. The Jewish people had no framework whatsoever for Yahweh who shakes the mountain coming as a human being. That's blasphemy. They had no concept for a resurrection of humans in the middle of history. They were as incredulous as you and I. And yet, on that morning, they're confronted, not with a scroll of religious ideas, but with a person, Jesus, life again, resurrection. Frank Morrison wrote a book in the 80s called Who Moved the Stone? Uh, and he set out writing this book to, to disprove the resurrection. And, and then in the middle of his research, he was converted to faith in Christ because whether you like it or not, there's some really compelling historical evidence for this event happening <laughs> because it takes this little splinter group of Jewish people who had no framework for it whatsoever and literally sends them out to inarguably, whether you believe in Jesus or not, change the whole world. And many of them die saying this Jesus has been resurrected and it means and changes everything. And why on earth do you die for something you know you had cooked up yourself? He said 500 people saw him alive and there's a public document circulating about it. Go and find him, talk to the people who saw him. And instead of that crushing and squelching the movement, it exploded 300 years after this. The entire Roman Empire is transformed by the message and life of Jesus. But here's the thing. I've been saying that every Easter for seven years. Some of you are like, I know that part, buddy. If you look at studies of what it takes to change someone's mind, they're really interesting. You can hear concrete, proven facts right to your face and walk away, not changed by it whatsoever. Because here's the thing. Information alone rarely transforms our lives. It's just, there's something more than logic wrapped up in our beliefs. There's some emotional attachment, deep relational connection, a connection to our identity. So it doesn't matter really how compelling the evidence is. Information rarely changes someone to the point that we're talking about here. We live by convictions. We live from our hearts, basically. The only thing that can truly move a person (laughs) is a relational encounter that overpowers previous conclusions. The people who met Jesus on Easter morning were not just discovering a complex religious idea. They were looking into someone's eyes. They were meeting a person. And wherever you are, they are like you. <laughs> there there, there, there are, are, are archetypes of every one of us. Locate yourself in this story. There are archetypes of every one of us in the group that's there on Easter morning. There's the Roman guards and the Jewish leaders, right? They're like, they are absolutely invested in this not being true. 
Some of you have an investment in this not being true, and it could be your pride. I don't want to. I don't want to take the humiliation of, be, of having to to go back on what I've always thought. I I I I I feel pretty self assured. For some of you, it's like lifestyle. Like there's certain things I'm just not going to change. I don't care if he does, you know, you know, Iron Man himself in front of me and, and say, "Here I am, resurrected Jesus." Like some of you are like, it's about relationships. The biggest drawback for me about Jesus is Christians. Look at how they vote. Look at how they act. They're so judgmental. I don't want to be around them. Some of you feel that way. There's, you're like the guards. You're like, I don't want anything to do, with it, to do with this. And that's okay. Others of you are like the women who are coming to anoint Jesus, embalm him for burial, right? You kind of have a hope that you wish this were true. Like it's a pretty big if. If this were true, it would be incredible. But you've been living with that if in your heart for so long and all the circumstances seem like stacked up against you like a huge stone that you don't expect to be rolled away. You're walking there, you've come here, but it's sort of like, when's brunch? I mean, I don't, Others of you are, there's a story about these guys who are following Jesus and then after he dies, they leave town. They go on the road to Emmaus. You may have heard this. And Jesus ends up showing up and walking with them for a while. I imagine him like tossing stones and playing a trick. Um, But they're disappointed. They had a faith. Some of you, this is you, you had a faith. And it was real at some point. You had experiences with God, but now you're so disappointed and disillusioned by how life has treated you that you're sort of walking away disappointed. And then some of you are like Peter. Gosh, that'd be great if it was true, but we've got some things to talk about. Last time we were together, I denied that I knew him after promising that I would stand with him to the end. And you're like, it'd be great if Jesus was alive, but I've got some skeletons in my closet, some shame that I'm constantly contending with. Here's the thing. Resurrection is about those questions I was talking about. The resurrection of Jesus is about those questions I was talking about at the beginning. It is about our most profound, I'll call them terminal problems. Before everything else that happens on Easter, it, is, it, it begins as a funeral because it is about grief, right? These women are carrying burial spices, right? You know this feeling. We have little chores that we do. We have ceremonies and meals that we observe when someone dies because we need something to get us up and get us going. And so we have a little, little ceremony, and that's what they're doing. They're walking, expecting simply to do their chores and go home. The resurrection of Jesus might feel like a million miles away from you, but I bet you can enter in at the place of grief. All of us have some story like that, the kind of deafening silence that accompanies real loss, the searching for words, the awkwardness, the the, the pain of death, the loss of a family member or, or a friend or, God forbid, a child. We have our own scenes, and they're so vivid Death is a rude, unwelcome interruption, and grief is like a sickness that we just have to ride out until it passes, if it passes. So many of us, we construct a way of living to distract ourselves so much that we don't have to face these types of questions because they're penetrating and they're scary. We need our poets and philosophers and storytellers to help keep them in front of us. I love Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy says, my question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? 
It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there anything death cannot take? Because let me tell you something that you knew before you came in here but probably weren't thinking about when you put on the pastels. No matter who you are or how you look or what you do or how people treat you in rooms where you are powerful and important, you are going to die. Happy Easter. No matter how good we get at ignoring our own death or pretending life goes on forever or, or living in a city that sort of worships youth and beauty, you're going to die. And are you going to take anything with you? What is going to last? Death is the great scale that weighs out the worth of everything we are and everything we do. And death is a, of course, terminal problem. But we also have an internal problem. If we're, if we're brutally honest, not just terminal, but as we go along, we're struggling. My friend was telling me of an account in, in the biography of a man named Joseph Nows. He has a memoir called Straight Pepper Diet. And uh, he's describing, this guy is describing the best day of his life. He was 12 years old. He was staying over at his best friend Colin's house. They went to the movies. They ordered pizza. They made root beer floats. The next day was Saturday. The whole family got up together. They made pancakes and they laughed. And then eventually Colin's mom drove Joseph home. And she drove him home to a fake house that she had picked him up at. And he had told her it was his house because... His housing project was right on the edge of the school zone. So he went to school in this wealthy community with these families that had a mom and dad and 2.5 kids and a golden retriever and had pancakes on Saturday morning. And he had gone over to Colin's house, but he didn't really want them to know where he was living or that his mother was a low-functioning addict and he was basically having to raise himself. And so this had worked time and time again. And she pulls up to drop him off at the house where he's supposed to live, except there's another family playing in the yard. And the mom says to him, where do you really live, Joseph? And he pretends he doesn't hear her, says thanks for the pizza, and gets out of the car before she could see his tears. And this is a quote. And as I walked away, I thought of how I would never see her again and would never sleep over at Collins again, not after what had just happened, not now that she knew. All right, you hear that, and you hear like you can hear the shame. You can hear it. Most of us know what those white hot drops feel like as they sizzle on our own spirit, that shame coming in. And you want to walk beside him and say, Joseph, there's more to this. You don't see it all right now. And you want to comfort him and build him up, but there's no one there right now. And the reality is for many of us, when we feel shame, we feel that exact same instinct to hide, to tell someone we live somewhere else or we are something else or we did something else. Ever, like whatever you think of Genesis as, a, 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 as an account of things, it is really true psychologically. <laughs> when shame comes in, we hide, we blame shift, we experience the brokenness of wanting to put on the fig leaf in one way or another. Kierkegaard defined the biblical concept of sin not just as the breaking of some moral rule, but as not wanting to be oneself before God. This is not just a cosmic story far away. This is crashing into our own hearts. My friend was telling me recently about this process of healing from uh, addiction. And uh, I think, honestly, whether you're addicted or not, I think that the 12 steps of, uh, uh, the 12 steps of recovery are, are some of the, the best spiritual contributions America has made to the world. And the fourth step, my friend was telling me, is you make a searching and fearless inventory of your own life. And he was sharing the categories that come in. F resentment, fear, 
relationship pain. And, and basically there's these, these charts and you list out everything you can think that you're angry about, everything that you can think that you're afraid of, everything that you can think that, that's broken in your relation or se- or, or relational or sexual life. I'm sitting there thinking, and then you go through and you be like, this touched this nerve in me, made me feel this way, and here was my part in it. I'm like, get me the charts. You don't have to be addicted to need this. All of us, the resentments and the fear and the brokenness, the loneliness, I need an Uber driver to take me to the beach. Right? A psychologist might say these are our presenting issues. <laughs> it's the thing that stirs in your soul that distracts you when someone like me is talking and you're like, yeah, you don't know about this. Or you can't imagine this. Or that anger right on the surface and the fear underneath it and the loneliness at the bottom. We have terminal problems, we have internal problems. Basically, you could say it this way, nothing lasts and death is awaiting us. But even if we could live forever with what we're dealing with, would we want to? We live with struggles that we need to deal with or find a way to numb. So what is the solution? One possible way is to simply resign yourself that this is reality, nothing can be done about it. You might as well live for the moment, get as much as you can, get as much as you can for yourself before it's gone, do whatever you need to do to deal with the pain in the meantime. That is a story that many of us, it's rolling in our subconscious and we have absorbed it like the water and we live in that and that makes you a fantastic consumer because you've got a lot you need to get as fast as you possibly can to express yourself as fully as possible. But Jesus offers a different option. He says this, what if death wasn't the end after all? What if I just took the period off the end of that sentence and I said, it can go on? And then you're like, okay, well, that's fine, but what about, I mean, that's sort of a fairy tale, that'd be nice, but what about the struggles, my my resentments and my fear and my anger and my lust and, and, and and the loneliness and the way the world's treated me and the way I've treated others, what about that? And he says, what if I could come inside you and identify all those places that I already know about and I could speak healing and life and resurrection and literally nothing that you could possibly face is stronger than death and I face death and come out clean on the other side and I'm speaking to you and saying, just let me have a go at your fear, at your resentment, at your anger, at your lust. I bet I could melt it away and transform you into your truest identity as a son or daughter of God made for love, made for relationships and that is the Easter message. Jesus came out of the grave and he's saying to you, would you like to come out of the grave? Would you like to come out of these terminal and internal, and internal problems that every human being has always wrestled with? So you're right, resurrection is about grief. It does start looking like, like a funeral. But Jesus walked out of the grave saying the end doesn't have to be the end. There is a kind of living that is unbroken by death. And the resurrection is about shame, It deals with that hiddenness and that desire to hide that we've inherited. And it puts an end to it, right? What does Jesus do? He goes and he finds his pals who are leaving town. And he says, hang on a minute. He goes and finds Peter who had denied him. And he makes him breakfast and he restores him. He literally recreates the scene where Peter had denied him. And he says, listen, you've been carrying this shame. Let me break it off you. resurrection is about a victory when the romans would win a military battle they would send their soldiers through the region screaming roma victor and that was meant to say hey peace is still here we're still in charge we won again 
Pax Romana. The Christians just stole that. No copyright. And they come saying, Christus Victor. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is why they're having to hide everywhere. Because they're saying, listen, our Jesus has won a victory and you can all have a share in it. And it confronts the very things that every human being, no matter where you started or where you're going, has to deal with. You're presenting issues, your dysfunctions, your failed attempts at self-sufficiency. All that horrible brokenness on the cross, Jesus takes it on himself. And what he gives you instead is his own perfect righteousness. A restored relationship with God, a new view of yourself fueled by love, a unique participatory role in the story of ongoing redemption. The gospel of Jesus is not, here's a list of things you can do to make God like you. It is not that old lie that your good and bad is going to be weighed on an eternal scale and whichever one's heavier you get in or out. That's not it. The gospel is everything you need for salvation and abundant life has been accomplished fully and finally by Jesus on your behalf. It is finished. So the resurrection is asking you, what's shaping your life? Is it enough? Does it have the wisdom to trickle down into what really makes you tick? And how could you change? I'm so encouraged that Jesus spends his first moments after resurrecting going and finding those people who were scattering because of their own pain. His love had endured the cross and now his love is pushed back the stone and now his love is chasing after people. And I love how Anne Lamott describes her, her coming to finally believe this. And she says, it was an accident, I swear. That is kind of how it always happens. You have a relational encounter with the living God. Love just came after me. What was I supposed to do? It was an accident, I swear. This resurrection shows us the kind of God we have. It also shows us the type of people that we are and what we need. Church, he is risen. Oh, come on now. You're acting like I just talked for 40 minutes in a hot room, church. Come on, he is risen. He is risen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, a friend shouted to me in the hallway just before I came up here and then prayed for, another friend prayed this for me right before I stood up to preach, that the same power that rose you, Jesus, from the dead is alive and well in my life and is alive and well in this room and is alive and well in your church. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would call us to resurrection life. Some of us for the millionth time, some of us for the first time. I pray that you would break through, God, into, into our cages of fear and resentment and loneliness, God. The, the coping mechanisms that we're, that we're dealing with, all the, the ways that our life has been shaped. Would you help us really to be changed by this love, changed by this resurrection? Come, Holy Spirit, and speak. Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're gonna come to the table in just a moment. And I just wanna share with you three, three ways that I think you can respond. Some of you, like, you can so relate to that walking away disappointed thing. Some of you, you've believed for so long, but it's just feeling hard to hang on. Some of you are dealing with some issue of shame. God wants to lift these things off of you and speak life. And so we're gonna come to this meal 
We're gonna be nourished by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which says, it is finished, we are free. And then some of you, this is, these are uncomfortable chairs, right, in this middle school auditorium. Some of you will need to stop for a minute and stand here with hands open or kneel and just sort of like let it go. Be undone for just a minute in the presence of God and leave something here and say, God, I, I leave this. I want to have your resurrection power. If you are considering trusting Christ for the first time, would you come and speak with someone that will be up here at the front? We would love to pray with you or you can mark it on your card that you're interested in that. We would love to follow up. And then for those of you who are followers of Jesus, we're going to lift the roof in celebration as we praise Jesus for the resurrection. So we're going we're gonna to come to the table. We're going to come and kneel and pray. There will be people here, here to pray with you over anything at all that you need prayer for. It doesn't mean that you're particularly messed up. It just means that you want to respond a way the Spirit is leading you. And then, and then, and then all of us are going to celebrate and worship. It is Easter morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Heavenly Father, would you bless this bread and bless this cup. Bless your church as she comes forward to receive. Would you lead us by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as you're ready, stand, come and receive the meal. Stay for prayer and let us worship.